The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, Jeff Knight joins the History of Gear to talk about the company he co-founded, Granite Gear. We talk about making a better portage pack, how the region influences the product, and the art of pack making. Well, welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and joining me today is Jeff Knight, founder of Granite Gear. Um, thanks for joining me. It's good to have you. You bet. Good, good to be here. Thanks for taking some time. Um, I guess I want to start from the beginning. I've, I've got a number of questions for you about, about your time starting Granite Gear and, and your time in the business, but I want to go back a little further and, and, and just understand what was your first introduction to the outdoors? Not the outdoor industry, but I guess outdoor recreation. Well, I grew up in a family that uh, camped all the time, and uh, during the summer we did a lot of trips. and uh, And my my dad loved the Bondi Waters, and he took both my brothers. and uh, He died when I was six, so I never got to go on one of the trips with him. I always wanted to go to the Bondi Waters, so I, that was kind of always in my in my head, and. Uh, and then I went to Minogen when I was, uh, which is a wide uh, camp up in, up in the Bondi Waters that we did. A, it was a two-week trip, a uh, week backpacking in, on Isle Royal, uh, which is in Lake Superior, and then a week in the Bondi Waters. And, uh, you know, we got, we got bit by bugs and uh, got sore and worked our, our butts off. And uh, the Bondi Waters, uh, that was the first part of that wave that, the counselor uh, decided it would be a good idea to let us all try Copenhagen. <laughs> and that's how I ended up puking over a cliff in the boundary water. So I remember that, <laughs> but I fell in love with just, just doing that kind of stuff. And then uh, when I was uh, in college looking for a part-time job, I started working at a store in Minneapolis called Burger Brothers Out- Outdoor Sports and uh, they ended up getting bought by Gander Mountain later. But uh, I, I started thinking I wanted to be a part of industry. And I was looking at all the different stuff out there and the gear. And the one thing that hadn't advanced a whole lot in recent years was portage packs. So the Boundary Waters packs were still, there was still this, this tradition with them and leather and canvas. And, uh, and so we decided to take innovations that had happened in backpacks and mountaineering packs and apply them to portage packs. 
Can you share a little bit more about what a portage pack is for those? So when you, when you, when you're traveling in, in the boundary waters, which is a huge number of thousands and thousands and thousands of acres in Northern Minnesota, it's all interlinked by, uh, by lakes with portages between them. So the portage is the way you get from one lake to the next. And it might be they, they measure portages in rods, and a r- one rod is 16 feet. Guess where that is? <laughs> <laughs> so that's about was about the average length of a canoe okay. when, when that was all developed. So, so they measure the, the portages in those. And some might be, you know, 16 rods, which is blip from one lake to another. And some of them might be 500 rods, which is pushing, pushing a mile. So, so you got to carry all your gear and your canoe. And so a portage pack is different than a, than a typical backpack and that you really want to keep the load below your shoulders so you can carry a pack and a canoe at the same time. Mm, okay. And, and so I think we'll get into this a little bit too, like your outdoor inspirations and gear inspiration, but I'm going to go back a little bit. So your connection to product you recognize that there was an industry. Um, I, I asked this question of, of everyone who comes on here. It's like, when did you realize that the outdoor industry was an industry? And I think you had the fortunate experience to, to go into a gear shop and have that experience and see, oh, wow, there's a larger world here. There's a larger a job selling the stuff. Right. So, so that was your introduction to the industry itself. Yep. And, and Burger Brothers, I remember I had to, to uh, write my my back my whole outdoor history for them as mm. part of my interview process so they they hired people that that were passionate about you know they had hunting fishing and outdoors so i worked the outdoor department but uh when i was working there i got into building building fishing rods and fly rods and because they sold the planks and all the components and, and uh i always liked to build things so I was going to say, did, did you see yourself as a tinkerer, you know, or have that, I guess. Yeah, and I was advice. since I was a kid, you know, making mountain snow or uh, skateboard bindings to skis and stuff like that. Mm. We, uh, <laughs> we created a lot of things when we were, when we were little that, uh, luckily we're still alive because, you know, nobody wore helmets back then. Oh, sure. <laughs> So where, when did the transition to, okay, I'm selling this stuff turn into, wow, there's a need here, right? There's a lack of product in this space. I'm going to be the one to go and just do it, right? Like where did that transition happen? Well, I was, I was going to college, uh, with, a you know, going for a commercial art degree actually. And, uh, but really didn't know what I wanted to do. Sure. And, uh, we're, we also were partying a lot back at that time. And uh, so school wasn't going very well for Dan or I. And we talked about some different businesses. And uh, and then one fall, it was a September, mid-September trip. We did a two-week trip up into the Quetico, uh, which is above the Boundary Waters in Canada, Quetico Provincial Park. And we went a long ways and did a kind of a huge route caught fish all the time and uh and just had a great trip but it was three of us on that trip and uh i came back and immediately started saving money for uh to buy an industrial sewing machine i just it just all clicked on that trip and uh 
And that's what we did. With, with that intention of creating better portage packs, was that kind of the, yeah. that, that was the yeah. intention? Yeah, that was, that was the low hanging fruit that I saw available to jump into the outdoor industry and create something that didn't exist. Who, who that was other... always big for me. I didn't want to be a, I never wanted to be a me too player. Right. Who were the other companies at that time? Cause this is, when is this mid eighties? Yeah, this would be, uh, um, when we did that trip was probably the fall of 85. Okay. Then we started in like middle of the winter, 86. Okay. So what, who were the other players out there, the other pack makers that you looked at and said, okay, I like what they're doing, but they're not filling my need. Who are the other players? At that time, Duluth pack was the big one for portage packs. Mm, Okay. And uh, if you've ever heard of Duluth pack, Mm -hmm. they're still still around. Uh, And, and then there was a company called grade six that was making packs that uh, were also somewhat modernized versions of a, of a Duluth pack. And I'm still real good friends with, with the grade six guy, which is, which is Charlie. So we used to, when we first went around with our packs, the, the canoe sport industry was pretty tight knit and everybody'd be like, Oh, those look really nice, but I don't know. I'm friends with Charlie. <laughs> so I don't know if we can sell them. And uh, eventually we, we worked our way in there and got most of the major retailers that do canoe gear selling our stuff. Right. Right. So you really went that just hyper-focused on kind of that paddle sports, you know, we're a complement to that. So you, you, I guess you didn't really think about the other pack makers in, in the other fields. Not at that really time. Much. We did just a few years later. So when, okay. when we moved the business from Minneapolis to two harbors, we also started rock climbing mm. and, uh, you know, up the shore from here is Palisade head, which is 300 foot sea cliffs into the lake and then shovel point. And then there's Carlton peaks. So there's some pretty good climbing around here. And, uh, we also hired a rep that had been an employee of Midwest mountaineering, Steve Hitchcock. And he ended up moving out to the Rockies and, uh, and repped, repped us in the Rockies, got us introduced to, uh, Sandy East at the international Alpine school. And we started building climbing packs and ski packs at that time. Mm. Okay. So that was kind of our, our transition from just, you know, northern Minnesota portage packs and things like that to, to climbing packs, ski packs. We did gloves and mitts, gaiters. And then, uh, you know, the packing systems was, was probably what was the most profitable for us in the early years. Uh, the, the rock solid compression sack, which is the arch design compression sack that squinches everything down that was a granite gear original mm. probably the most copied item we ever did because there's a ton of people that that do it now but uh we were the first to do that style before that it was just the low tele compressor which, uh, which was a different animal so i was gonna say what what are some of the other innovations or contributions that you feel like you you pushed um, and that you brought to the forefront, brought to the industry that, that people really weren't considering or doing before, like in, in the vein of, you know, those, those well, innovations. I, you know, when uh, we started looking at, 
at through hikers in the Appalachian Trail and CDP and and uh, Pacific Crest Trail and uh, in the early 2000s went to trails in Damascus, Virginia, and just kind of checked out everything that those that crowd was using for packs. And uh, we came back and and developed the Vapor Trail, the Virga, the Vapor Trail, and the Ozone, which was three packs. One was one pound, the Vapor Trail was two pounds, and the Ozone was at three pounds. And kind of designed with the idea that if you're carrying under 20 pounds, the Virga, Vapor Trail, if you're in the, you know, keeping it under 30 pounds, and, and uh, the Ozone are the, uh, those packs uh, for heavier, you know, 25, 35 pounds. So it was three packs designed specifically for what kind of loads you were carrying. Right. And, uh, but with finely tuned suspension systems, they kind of went beyond what most of the ultra packs before that did. Right. So, and we got, uh, editor's choice award from, from backpacker on for, for two packs, the, uh, vapor trail and the ozone. So, and later, uh, that same series of packs, we got a, a gear of the year from, uh, from outside. So we got quite a few kudos for those. And those led into some of the packs that, uh, later on we, uh, you know, we're still, they're still getting, uh, some awards for. Right. Did, did you have a moment when you first saw a product that you designed out in the wild? Do you, do you remember, do you have a moment where you remember seeing something like in an airport or on the trail? Well, or I remember seeing thought? stuff in airports over the years, especially okay. early on and going, Oh wow. You know, and sometimes wanting to, wanting to find out where they got it. And, yeah. You know who they were, but, but uh, yeah, you know, not to the degree that, that uh, Osprey, <laughs> you can walk through the airport now and I'm just amazed at the amount of Osprey I see. Right. Well, I think that's a a good um, that's a good transition to talk about some of the others in this space. Like you've you've built relationships. I think the pack space is really unique because packs as a product or they're just a unique animal. I feel like um, yeah, you know the unique challenges that you're facing, and and packs are just hard to do. And so it seems like there's kind of a kinship that you probably develop with the other pack makers, but. Um, and you shared some of this offline, but some of your connections, um, through OR shows and, you know, through, you know, uh, just developing relationships. Can you share any, any thoughts there as, you know, just developing relationships with the other pack makers of the time? Well, I think, I think with, with some of them, there was always a mutual respect, but it was laced with, with, with a level of competition too. So, you know, Osprey made some really pretty packs and they always aesthetically looked amazing. And I always believed a little bit in the, the fewer the seams, the better, mm. which, which means it maybe not end up quite as sculpted, but in the long run, it might be able to hold up better is what, what our thoughts were. Right. Less points of failure. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, there's the whole transition that we haven't talked about, which is yeah. the, the transition from, everybody wanting something that was built to last a lifetime and overkill was a popular word to, to we want to minimize it all and get down to the smallest buckles and the thinnest webbing and, 
and and go as light as it can possibly be. And you know, when we were our motto when we started doing the ultralight packs was ultralight done right because we wanted to still have fully padded, articulated shoulder straps and belts and a decent suspension, but we wanted to use you know materials, cutting edge materials that that could help us cut weight and designs that were you know a little bit more streamlined and simple. Do you ever feel like you are being pulled in too many directions? It's it's been interesting, you know, the origins of the company focused on the Portage Pack, um, heavily influenced by the region, right, uh, where the company starts. But going into you know ski packs and and ultralight and and was that a challenge that you ever faced? Is wow, there's so many different pack needs for so many different activities. No, I, that wasn't really the challenge. I think the challenge was that uh, that just the way the marketplace works and the retailers and the trade show cycles, people wanted to see new stuff every cycle. They wanted you to keep changing something that you might've gotten an award for, but they wanted new stuff added to it. So, you know, we would add a pocket to a pack that was an ultralight pack that didn't really need that pocket, Mm. you know, but we, we did it because the marketplace was demanding a new look, a new this, and and the old idea that if it's not broke, don't fix it was thrown out the window, and a lot of resources went into to to satisfying the retailers, but it wasn't, and and it was always a frustration to me. It wasn't really necessarily going to take better concerns of the consumer, the guy actually out there, the woman out there backpacking, right. Right. Yeah, totally. There's a little bit of a disconnect, right? You're being a little further removed from, from the actual user. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, we, we talked about this off air as well. Like, and I think it, it fits nicely with this conversation um, in a lot of ways, but I feel like your thought process, even your story is very similar to a lot of the um, gear pioneers, I'd say, right? Like the the Jerry and Ann Cunningham's, the Holyu bars, you know, the, the Yvonne Chenards of the world, right? Um, who even I'd throw in people like Jim and Greg Thompson in the pack world, yeah. um, you know, people who were users who didn't necessarily have formal training when it came to product design, who just figured it out. Um, yeah. Greg shares the story of staring at his sewing machine you know, trying to figure out how it all worked and taking shots, you know, and, and like all through the night, trying to figure out how to make this thing work. Shots, and then, maybe a little bit of this too. Huh? Maybe, um, <laughs> but, but trying to figure out how does this thing work? Um, you know, and then at its core and then, you know, using that to, to build a better product. And, and I see you, even though the company starts in the mid to, you know, mid, mid eighties and on when there's a lot of transition happening, there's still a lot of that outdoor DIY, you know, DNA to it that I think um, is something to be really proud of. I don't, how do you feel about that? Do you still feel like you're a part of, you know, that, that kind of golden I, I age? I think so. I, I think that uh, things that we did changed, you know, and, and affect things to this day in the outdoor marketplace, you know, you never know how much or, you know, without doing uh, 
you'll take take yourself out of the picture and what would it be like without you you never know but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh it's the, the industry's changed a lot that's for sure yeah and the and all the corporations coming into it and uh you know today i you know just on the other side here i have a manufacturing operations that makes the stuff for for adventure vans hmm. and uh we're also looking at at uh, making a portage pack again and building but building it all here and it's not easy i just had to tell one of the major retailers that does does portage packs that i think our pack's gonna have to wholesale for, for what you know competition made in vietnam is is retailing for right you know, is is there people that are going to pay that money right uh, but yeah, we'll see. Well, one of the major transitions that you saw and, 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 you know, um, you, you were a part of, um, or affected by was this transition from making everything here in the U S to, you know, transitioning over to Vietnam. Um, I had, it's interesting timing. I had a conversation or China, yeah. or China right. And yeah. I had a conversation with the Hein brothers, um, and and they made Hein Snowbridge in Colorado, right. and um, around the same era, I believe, same same time period. But um, their story is different in that they just the they got priced out. You know, they they weren't able to keep up and and move their product overseas and and stay alive. And the company ended up, you know, I think that it ended up being sold and and then kind of went under. Um, you were yeah. able to weather that storm and adjust. But what was that transition like? It was it was hard, you know. And uh, I was a, I was the one. So I was a business partner. My original business partner was Dan Crookshank, and in '93, his brother, who came out of GE Plastics and was a corporate guy, came in as our third equal partner. So I was in business with with uh, two brothers, and Mike was pushing hard for us to take everything offshore and it created a lot of tension between the three of us because i would work dan over and let dan try to work his brother over and uh it was it was always a little bit of a tumultuous relationship with the three of us but in the long run we 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 did okay but but partnerships you know it's like any other kind of intimate relationship (laughs) it uh business partnerships uh can be difficult right I'm, I'm going to go back a, again a little bit, but um, through doing these interviews, um, you know, I've, I've seen some common threads and I think your story is different in, in some ways, which is really interesting. But a lot of the people that we've talked to, there's this migration out to the West, right? You have, you have people escaping, right? Cities and, you know, going out to the West to, you know, climb mountains and ski and, you know, and, and build product. Um and the one I always bring is bring up is Larry Horton, you know, going to going to the mountains um, and starting Rivendell Mountain Works, right? His own pack company, building yep. his own little Rivendell, his own escape. Um, and so much of it is like centralized over in, in, in the West or California. And your story is different in that you you stayed you know, where, where it started and, and you built it there. And, and I think that influenced like the culture and values and, and ultimately the product as well. What, what are your thoughts on that? Did you well, ever feel to, disconnected? We used to talk from... about it. In fact, it's probably in some of these catalogs, why we're on the North shore of 
Lake Superior. Yeah. And that uh, in the mountains, you know, you've got, you've got better backpacking and higher terrain, but uh, you might be a lot farther from a place to, uh, to go on a canoe trip or, or paddle. Mm-hmm. And uh, you got good climbing, but here we've got pretty decent climbing. And so and the cost of living in, in uh, northern Minnesota is still a lot less than out there. So when we moved up here, uh, this was close enough to the iron range that uh, and the iron, iron industry was way down at the time. There was a lot of economic in- incentives to, like, mm. help a business move into this region. So we took advantage of those, you know, wrote a business plan and, and raised, raised equity and had, had some some uh, bank and, and low interest loan gr- things that happened uh, that allowed us to move up here. Uh, but if you've never been to the North Shore of Lake Superior, it's, it's hard, hard to answer that question. You kind of got to see it because this area is pretty spectacular. And, uh, you know, here I'm able to have a nice place out in the woods with some amazing skiing terrain and Nordic trails you know, 56 acres, you know, that uh, it's not worth a fair amount of money, but not the kind of money it would be worth in Colorado. Right. I, I think I it's it's interesting to just, I, I think the identity of the, the, the company in a lot of ways and, and companies in general go back to, to the region where they started. And I, I think that's the case with Granite Gear for sure. Um, and I'm, I'm just interested in tracing the history of these different brands and these hot spots of gear around the country. And every region has their you know, their, their gear company or their retailer, or, um, it's yeah. interesting to trace that, that lineage. Yeah. In our, in our area, there's, there's a lot of companies involved with to this day stuff for the boundary waters, supportage packs and all that. And then you've got, uh, up in Ely, you've got, uh, Steger Mucklucks, which date, you know, goes back to Will Steger and, uh, the, the 86 North Pole, expedition that they did the dog sled expedition mm. to the pole uh that they started building the gear to make that and then that she turned that into a business and then uh shirkies with wintergreen uh paul shirky was on that expedition with will and they started doing wintergreen outdoor apparel which is still being made in ely was it was they sold it at one point and then bought it back because it wasn't getting done right <laughs> mm. So yeah, there's there's a good little outdoor community, and Duluth has gotten really well known for uh, for its trail systems and uh, especially mountain biking trails. The whole North Shore's kind of had an explosion with with uh, real technical mountain bike trails getting built. Right, right. Well, well I guess when it comes back to, to the company itself, when, when did you kind of transition away from, from the brand and what was that experience like, you know, separating yourself from something that you built from the ground up? Well, it was, it was somewhat painful. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we sold in 2013 and, and I mentioned our two, my two business partners, Mike was getting to the age and uh, where he just wanted to retire and spend the rest of his time golfing, which he liked to do. And uh, Dan had some ambitions to, to start another business. So he's uh, started uh, a bike shop, coffee shop, 
and has Sidero uh, bike bags that he builds in the USA and has done pretty well with. Uh, and my intention was to stay on with the company uh, as, as uh, what was I? I can't remember what title they gave me, but I only lasted six months. <laughs> and I decided it was time to, to get myself out of there. And it was a little ugly. A lot of legal letters and all that kind of fun stuff. So it sounds I like a not, oh, I had ahead. a five year non compete. So so it's been like eight years because that was twenty thirteen. So I'm well past that. Right. Right. And now, now dipping your toe a little bit back into into where it all began with PAX. Yeah, yeah. How is that? What's that feeling like kind of coming full circle? You know, something that you've done well, for so long and then being separated of, from it. And then a lot of back the van it. stuff we make, the window covers for vans and all that. I mean, they're, I think, the nicest ones being built out there. And uh, but, but one of those items might have 15, 20 steps to it at the most. Right. Whereas, whereas a... A pack, typically you're looking at hundreds of steps. Right. So, you know, how you set up to efficiently build it and and maximize your in-between time so you're not doing a bunch of setup becomes really important. And, uh, you know, making more than one of them <laughs> and having a decent run size becomes really important because otherwise you just can't even get close to being able to compete, especially when you're competing with products that's built offshore. Right. Right. Well, why, why stay in this industry? It's interesting. Like some people, you know, sell their, their stake and then go do something else or retire or, you know, kind of move away from the industry or just go play outside. You've chosen to stay working in, in this industry. Oh, Why? Part of it is I didn't make enough money on the sale of the company. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't didn't turn out to be as much as it was supposed to be. But that's another story. Mm. Uh, but you know, the bottom line is, it's it's w- really what I do. So I, I kind of intended when I left Granicure to do be more of a product development guy, and. Mm-hmm build things for other companies. And, and I did a fair amount of that. And uh, we've got like six different customers now that, that come to us for you know, some of them's medical industry related. We build a product for Medtronic. You know, we, we've, we've got just an array of things that we do. Uh, but the idea of building something, giving it to the people in Vietnam to produce, having to go there and, and, and uh, manage it all again, that didn't really appeal to me. I really liked the, the process of, of building a product, designing it, building it, making it here, and actually being involved in every step of the process. Right. And, you know, from a design perspective, you know, these people that send off concept drawings and just have them build it, they, we start to end up with a little bit of a cookie cutter thing going on over there where everything starts to look the same. Hmm. And, and even when I come up with patterns, it usually changes when I sit down at the sewing machine and start actually putting things together. You know, I'll, the light bulb will go off halfway through and I'll go back and rework something because, because I, I discovered something that's going to work better 
while putting it together. Right. Right. Well, I think it's great that you're still doing something that, that you love. And there's this through line between, you know, from, from tinkering, right. Um, and you're still making, uh, which I, I think is incredible. Um, what did we miss? It's kind of, as to kind of wrap up the conversation, did, did we miss any of the high points, any of the low points that, that you want on the record or, um, or did we about cover it? Well, I think, I think, I think we covered most things, you know, I think, you know, all this, the, the, the business partnerships things is, is, uh, is an interesting side of it. And, you know, I always wanted to build the highest quality, best stuff out there and charge what it was worth. And, and, uh, our other business partner, Mike wanted to, to always have pricing that was less than our other competitors. Right. Right. And in retrospect, I think I should have fought harder. I think, think people are willing to pay what it's worth and sometimes underpricing it doesn't do you any good right doesn't make it more desirable to people at least the people that that you're designing it for i think that's a good lesson i think that's something that the industry probably faces to this day right there's still i think a battle going on between kind of those those ideas right well Um, i'm i'm astounded at pack prices and I look back at catalogs, you know, I could pull out 2005. So there's our 2005 catalog. I think we had retails in here by this time. Yeah. So Vapor Trail was 150. Virga 170. So, you know, those prices haven't changed that much, but every material's gone up. Container costs are, are I guess, running five times what they were two years ago. I don't, I don't know how the pack prices haven't gone up more dramatically with inflation. Right. And to your point, um, a few minutes ago, how many operations go into a pack? Seems like we're severely undervaluing, you know, that, that skill set and that, you know, the amount of operations, the complexity of, of the product, right. It's I, really the industrial sewer, the person that can do that kind of work. That's not a, a McDonald's wage kind of a job. Uh-uh. The, the, the amount of time it takes to get good at it is a lot of time. And it's always been undervalued. It's always been the, the wife that's husband works and she doesn't really need to make that much money and just likes doing it. Mm. you know, working on the sewing floor and, and, uh, you know, so that's the other thing I decided that when I was going to do this here and build in the USA, I had to build things that, that I could pay my employees a living wage to do. Right. And, uh, that, you know, time will still tell whether it'll work with, with outdoor industry products. The nice thing about the stuff for adventure vans is there's it's a big enough market that it that it can be lucrative to build it, but it's not quite big enough yet that it makes sense to build it in China or Vietnam, although there are some people starting to do it. So I you know, we've been able to get paid what it's worth to do it. Right. Right. And and then we can pay our bills and we can grow and we can do everything else. But it, uh, you know, that's, that's, that was always the struggle, especially when we built everything. 
in-house and you're trying to train new people to do things. And right. It's an interesting equation. Well, this has been, this has been great. Um, some incredible les- lessons. Um, I just think a really, a really great story. I'm, I'm, I just appreciate that you're willing to willing to share it. Um, but I, yeah, I, I just appreciate the conversation learning a little bit more from you and, and getting some of this on the record. I, cause I think there's a lot to learn here. One story I just gone, I mean, that I didn't uh, throw out there. If you're is, uh, is the hut story. Hmm. So when, when I bought my piece of property in uh, 91 and when Mike came in in 93, I had this really big hill on the property. We decided to, Dan and I needed to be able to get away from the everyday stuff going on at Granite Gear twice a week and just go design. And this was before CAD CAM stuff and, and uh, doing, doing pattern development on a computer system. Uh, is when we still did it with, with flexible rulers and paper. And so we had this, this hut up on this, this hill on my property that was about half mile skier hike into that, uh, that we had our sewing machines and, and tables and paper and everything we needed. And we would go up there and, and uh, pull the sewing machine we used the most in the wintertime and set it right next to this wood stove. It was an 18 foot octagon, so it had machines all the way around it. And uh, we'd go up there, and by the end of the day, we'd be walking out with with a finished something put together. So and that was always those were fun days. And uh, we had we had the first brick phones. So you know, at, the, at our house because we were beyond power lines and, and phone lines, we had a, a Yagi antenna and a phone. But on the top of the hill we could actually make calls with the brick phone. So if somebody really needed to get a hold of us, they could call us on this phone. <laughs> That's great. I, that gives a great image of what it was like to get this going. Um, yeah. I, I think that that really helps kind of ground like this whole story and like how you, how you built this. So I'm, yeah, I'm glad that you remember to share that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we always were trying to, uh, to do our best, you know, it's the old, uh, you know, think outside the box thing, mm-hmm. you know, which is definitely overused, but we were always trying to do our best to come up with something that wasn't what was already out there yet. wasn't just coming up with something that wasn't out there for the sake of it not being something that was out there, but actually an improvement in the way something worked. Right. And, uh, we accomplished it a lot of the time, I think. So, well, that's great. Well, Jeff, this has been fun. Thank you yeah. for taking some time to share your story and your insights. Thanks for listening to the Highlander Podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu/podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.